0: Father, as we come now to open Your Word, we do ask that You would open our hearts and minds through Your Holy Spirit, that we would be able to take what You have for us today, and not just for the moment, but to carry with us as we walk with You everywhere that we go. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. To share with you quickly that... Uh, uh, we are going to have some refreshment after uh, church with uh, a cake for for Kim. And uh, there's a card back there on the table uh, in the in the fellowship room that if you'd like to sign, uh, wishing her well and letting her know that you'll be praying for her. And then to also, I forgot to mention, daily breads uh, for this next quarter out on the counter in there and on the table on the other side of the, the wall. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 23, 24, and 25, and just before we I read those, I just uh, a little bit of a review in Matthew uh, chapter 4. Keep it all in context, as you recall uh, a few weeks ago uh, the the sermon that uh, Levi did on the temptation of Jesus uh, in Matthew, in the first eleven verses, and then. We get to verse 11 and, and, and then go to verse 12. And between verses 11 and 12, we actually have a one-year gap. Uh, that gap is the early ministry of Jesus, primarily in the Judean area. That's uh, where uh, Jesus uh, uh, cleansed the temple the first time. Uh, we also have the miracle in Cana, uh, where he turned the, the, the water into wine. And uh, various things that, you know, various ministries that we find mostly in the gospel of John uh, up through chapter 4. The Samaritan woman and his ministry to the area of Samaria. uh, All of that happens uh, prior to verse 12 of Matthew chapter 4. In verse 12 we find that John the Baptist has been arrested. He's been arrested by Herod. We get those details later on as far as the actual account of what happened. But this is the time frame. And in his arrest, uh, he was making a very clear statement in reference to Herod's uh, life and and his... Well, it wasn't illegal in the the Roman Empire, but it certainly was wrong and immoral before the throne of God. Uh, His marriage uh, to Herodias... And uh, their their relationship and all. It, I'm not going to get into it now. But John the Baptist. Have you ever had that situation where so, you see somebody standing on the, the the street corner and you hear him preaching the gospel? And I can recall uh, some people uh, that I knew. They were kind of embarrassed, you know, kind of like, oh, how you know, you wish it. There are some people who are called to cry out. That's all I can say. John the Baptist was certainly one of them. And when he, and he initially was crying out in the wilderness, and then the last part of his ministry was crying out in the city street against Herod. And Herod and Herodias, uh, especially Herodias, was upset, had him arrested. That was the end of John the Baptist's ministry. What was the preaching that he gave? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's interesting to me that in verse 17... Uh, we have, you know, Jesus says, first off, verse 12, Now when we heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken of the prophet might be fulfilled in reference to uh, the, him coming out of that area. And, and in verse 17, it shows that John, uh, Jesus picks up right where John left off. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist was the end of an era, if you will, of prophets. Hebrews chapter 1 says that God first spoke through His, you know, through the prophets of old, and then it kind of says then he spoke through his son, Jesus Christ. John is one of the prophets of old, then through Jesus Christ. Jesus waited until the completion of John's ministry before he started his public ministry in preaching the gospel and the kingdom of heaven. Chapter uh, verses 18 through 22 talk about the calling uh, of his first disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. uh, And then we get to verse 23. and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Quite an extensive area uh, that we're beginning to follow Him. And I make the comment again, this ministry being focused in Galilee was really, in a sense, an affront to the standard of uh, the Pharisees and the scribes and the priests because Jerusalem is the head of everything, and here He is, out in the wilderness, in a sense, not, and it's really not a wilderness very heavily populated area. But, but the idea was, is that he's from, the, well, let's just put it the way it is. That's where all the hicks come from, you know. The, the, the yeah, you know, they're the country kids, you know. And Jesus is out there. He's not amongst the scholars. He's not amongst the teachers. He's out there with the people. This Galilean ministry, it's very clear. He's teaching, it says, in the synagogues of the the area. And he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's all ties together. He's fulfilling the prophecy also. When you look at what he's doing, he's preaching to everybody. He's preaching to the poor. He's healing the, the... the, the sick and those with uh, demonic uh, issues and, and things. And it kind of parallels what he was doing, uh, what happened in Luke chapter four, uh, when he, he said that this is what he had come to do. Luke chapter four verse sixteen. And he came to Nazareth. Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and he was a uh, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. That's Isaiah 61 that was being quoted there. And so Jesus has come. He is doing exactly that in the Galilean area. And he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And his fame, literally it says, his fame spread. The people were excited. They were flocking to him. What I'd like to focus on this morning is this, this kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, uh, that the Jesus is preaching here, the good news of this kingdom. Again, chapter four, uh, verse seventeen: the king repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in verse twenty-three, he was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And I realized as I was looking at this, the very first thing that came to my mind was Matthew 6:33, "Seek ye first the kingdom of God." And of course they added part of it, and all these things will be added to you. You need to go to uh, verses 25 through 32 of chapter six of Matthew to, to see those things that will be added to you, but basically it says that God's going to provide for you. And I put here, uh, God's provision according to His purpose. Uh, the fact that it says that all things will you know that God will provide for you take care of your needs doesn't parallel with the idea that anything you ask for or anything you think you need you're going to get. I uh, capture a pastor from Wisconsin whose one of his favorite phrases is uh, it was one of two ways you know either everything is going to be hunky dory on the way to glory or things aren't going to be hunky dory on the way to glory. Jesus was not promising everything was going to be okay. Jesus wasn't promising that things couldn't go wrong. But what is being said here is that if you seek the kingdom of God, all the things that you need according to His purpose will be taken care of. Can you rest with confidence in that? That was what He was trying to get at. Because we spend so much time, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because that's a future message, but... We spend so much time getting anxious about tomorrow. I don't know about you, but I spend a lot of time trying to figure out how it's going to come together. I'm trying to figure out how it's going to come together financially, how it's going to come together with my health, how it's going to come together with... You know, and you just go down the line. And the interesting thing is, is that the way I thought it was going to come together when I was 35 is not the way it's come together 30 years later. I'm sure my wife would attest to that as well. 30 years later, this was not the way we thought it would be. We're not complaining. We are blessed people. But it's just not the way we thought it would be. We had so many other thoughts in our minds. And some of them, I have to confess, I was anxious about. Even though I knew I needed to seek first the kingdom of God. But I was thinking... As we look at this, two questions come to at least me that, that I'm thinking seek first the kingdom of God is what is the kingdom of God and how do we seek it? So let me give you a brief picture of the kingdom of God. And for me, it starts with the idea that if you have a kingdom, it needs a king. Well, so I, I start with Philippians chapter 2. and and familiar verses to to all of us. And that was that uh, Jesus is one who has been exalted. And let me read it uh, to you. uh, Chapter 2, verse 9 of Philippians. Therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord for the glory of God the Father. Revelation says he's the king of kings, the lord of lords. Ephesians 1:20 says that everything will be at his feet as his footstool with one exception, his church. His church is not going to be his footstool. Read it carefully. It says in Ephesians chapter 1 that the church is his body. He is sitting at the right hand of God. Therefore, we are the body of Christ, sitting at the right hand of God. We are not the footstool of Christ. But everything under creation uh, will be. Because, and, the, and the interesting thing is because he has called us brothers and sisters, joint heirs with him, and sharing his kingdom in a sense of rule even with us but He is the King. Matthew 28, you're familiar with that as far as the, 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 the Great Commission, but its prelude to, to sending us out is all authority has been given to me, Jesus says. He is the, the authority in all, in all things in the final sense. And I was looking at that and it reminded me, and I know that I, I, I frequently go to this But Psalm chapter 2 is a a powerful picture of the earth, heaven, and and how the kingdoms of the earth look at the the authority of God. And I want you to think about it today, even as what we see, even sadly, many times in our own country. Um, Last Sunday afternoon, I was witness to one of the most awesome honor guard memorials to a person uh, Bart Sockman who had served in World War II in the Marines had the full the honor guard here to 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 honor him and it was amazing we had they had the the guns they had the flags all of it here and you're, th- you're thinking, "Where are they going to shoot the guns?" because <laughs> you know, they, they were here to do that three-round volley. They marched from back there, out the door, stood on the ramp, did the volleys. Uh, and the cops didn't come. Um, and, and then they played taps. The guy played a silver bugle. It's beautiful. I, I, I just I can't it was just amazing. It was an awesome service, but possibly the most awesome part was something that I have. I've done a lot of military funerals where there's been honor guards. I had never seen this. They unfolded the flag. Normally, when they do it in the church, the flag is is already folded, and they bring it to you know they don't go through the whole. They unfolded the flag and held it up while taps was played, that we could all salute the flag and the fallen. And it was an awesome thing. I'm getting goosebumps just talking about it again. But then they folded the flag and did a 13 stanza uh, poem, I guess you would call it, of, of of every fold having something to do with God, eternity, and, and, and the service that has that, uh, that been given to the United States. And... John, who the, the, the Navy commander who was uh, retired, uh, that was doing the service, had asked permission prior to the, the service if he could do that poem. And I thought it was peculiar. I had not heard it before, but and the reason he had to ask permission was the VA has forbidden it because some people have been offended over the, 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 the years uh, because it mentions God and, and eternity and this type of thing. And because we're in a church and he asked permission, we could do it. But that was the only way. Um, you see, man has, has so succumbed. Even in our culture, which has a history of, 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 of Christian ethics and Judeo-Christian ethics, uh, tends to want to shake its fist at God. And that's what's happening here in, in, in Psalm 2. Let me read it to you. The first three verses. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointing, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The word cords there is fetters. Cast away their fetters. I don't know how many of you are familiar with like hobbling a, a horse so that he can't run through the field, he, and so he can't get away from you at, at night. If you're out in the, in the, the field someplace, you'll, you'll, you'll wake up with him fairly close to you. Okay, uh, and that's the idea of fetter or, or cords. There, what it's saying is that the, the 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 kings of the earth and and the leaders of the world they're taking their counsel together. They're counseling one another without any godly influence, and they're and they're basically shaking the fist at God, saying we don't want the boundaries that we see there. We see them as something that will hobble us rather than free us. We'll have to you know. We'll have to submit to a higher authority. We'll have to submit to, well, ultimately, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so they're shaking their fists saying, we won't do that. We're not going to submit. Now look at verse five, 4, 5, and 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Who is sitting in the heavens laughing? It's God. Now it's not a laugh of... of, of, of or anything like that, but with the understanding that how foolish. Okay, The Lord holds them in in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. You can shake your fist all you want. I've already set my king in place. The next three verses, the king speaks. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Who only but Jesus Christ could say that. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Referring to all those who require judgment and shake their fists. So, Jesus speaking. You see the, the progression here. The earth... The, the the scene one is the earth, and they're shaking their fists at God, saying, "No." God's saying, it, you, "You know, it doesn't matter what you say. I've already done this. It's already considered in place. I've already appointed my king." And then the king, the son, actually speaks and says, "This is the authority God has given me to even judge you." Then David gives us a warning for the last three verses. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. That's a pretty serious psalm. And you think about all that it says. And all I'm trying to say is is that there is a kingdom of God that is established already, and the sense of who it is and who the King is, and it's Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he is the King of kings. All authority has been given to him. Where is this kingdom? Well, in John chapter 18, Pilate was questioning Jesus, and he basically said, It's not of this earth. Not of this world. And it's interesting, John in John 8 23, when Jesus was talking with the Pharisees, he said, I'm not of this world. That doesn't mean that the kingdom isn't visible or or touching or a part in this world. What it means is it doesn't originate in this world. If it did, it would be tainted. But it originates with God. It does not originate on the earth, and it operates under a whole different set of Principles and standards than earthly kingdoms. All you have to do is read the next three chapters and see what I'm talking about in Matthew the Sermon on the Mount. It's a whole different set of standards for the kingdom of God. It's in the process of being built and has been since the incarnation of Jesus. It will be completed at his second coming in the, in the judgment of the Earth and the establishment of the new heavens and the new Earth. And Revelation chapter 21 and 20, 20 and 21 just uh, or excuse me, 21 and 22, really give you a beautiful picture of that. So we have a kingdom with the king that has been established, and actually it has been said in the sense of established before the foundation of the world. Even Psalm 2. Speaks of it before the incarnation of Christ. But we see it physically in Christ coming together. And it's at hand. It's amongst them. It's near them at that point in time. This kingdom also has citizens. What's well, a kingdom and a king without a, a, a group of people to, to be there as the subjects? In Ephesians chapter 2, Verses 19 through 22. We are called citizens. Let me read them to you. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The dwelling, the place, the Holy Spirit. And so here's this picture of of we are the citizens. Philippians three twenty calls us citizens. First Peter chapter two verses nine and ten talk about uh, this this picture of, of who we are in, in, in God. Versus, uh, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are part of the kingdom of God. It's uh, an amazing picture. All who have, have confessed that Christ is their Savior. First um, John chapter 3, uh, the first couple of verses. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be as is not yet appeared, but we know that when we he appears we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. What a powerful picture. There's a, a phrase already, but not yet that's it's been around in several you know commentaries and, and theologians, but the idea is, is that we already can see it. We're already a part of it, but it's not yet complete. It's not yet done. And First and John three really says it clearly. We 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 and Paul says we see in a mirror dimly, but then we'll see clearly. You know, it's in it's it's coming together. It's we're a part of it, and we're already in it. We are already a part of it. We are already the children of God, but we can't quite see how it all comes together. And then the trumpet the gathering of the saints of God, the marriage feast. And I really believe it, and I share it every time I talk about it, we're going to see from the other side all that God has put together. We're going to see it all in one kind of panoramic picture instead of the myopic little part we can see from this side in our own little lifetimes. And we're going to see it, and we're just going to be in awe of what God has done. And And... We're all part of this. We're citizens of this kingdom. Not everyone in the world is citizens. John chapter 3 makes it very clear. There are those who have uh, received the light and accepted the light of Christ, but there are those who prefer to stay in the darkness. And they've already condemned themselves by that choice. And how do we go about seeking this kingdom? Well, uh, I, I put here Pilgrim's Progress. <laughs> How many of you are familiar with John Bunyan's book Pilgrim's Progress? If you've never read it, you should. I have so many people say, but it's so hard to read. Well, that must mean you have an Old English copy. Uh, you know, original, you know, uh, I, I'm more into the children's abridged copy um, with the pictures. Uh, and I even have the video that goes with it. Uh, so you know, but it is one of the most awesome stories compiled together of, of, of multiple messages that Bunyan was speaking to his people to keep them going. But the idea is, is that there is a narrow path, a narrow way into heaven. Oh my we, Matthew chapter 7 speaks about that. Wide is the path of destruction narrow? This is a path to the kingdom of God, salvation. And he sees in a distance the gate of this path. And and he wants to get through it because he realizes after having read the word of God, a book that his his mother gave him, actually, the way the, the, the story goes, he realized he had a burden on his back. Nobody else could see the burden but him. But he could see it because he had read this book that his mother had, it was his mother's, and it was talking about sin. And he wanted to get out from underneath the burden. And the only way to get out from underneath the burden of sin was to go through the wicked, not wicked, wicked gate and get on the narrow path. He comes to the cross, the burden falls off, but now is the progress to the, the to the celestial city, the new heaven, the new earth, the kingdom of God. And he's on the path and the straying back and forth and all that happens. And what it made me think of was the Roman Road. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Roman Road. I'm not going to go through it this morning. Yeah, I am. Ted, would you go get me a, a copy of the Roman Road just sitting out there, or the blue one sitting right underneath the, the hand sanitizer there? I wasn't going to, but I think I should. Just because, well, I'm colorblind. No. Um, Roman Road is, is a series of verses from the book of Romans. And this was put together by questions.org. But I, I'll just put it. the first verse on the Roman Road to salvation is Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. We all have done things that are displeasing to God. There is no one who is innocent. Romans 3.10-18 gives a detailed picture of what sin looks like in our lives. The second scripture on Romans' road to salvation is 6.23. And it teaches us about the consequences for sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The punishment that we have earned for our sins is death. Not just physical death, but eternal death. The third verse on the Roman road to salvation Picks up where Romans 6.23 left off, but the free, the, the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5.8 declares that God demonstrates His own love towards us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus Christ died for us. Jesus' death paid for the price of our sins. Jesus' resurrection proves that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice. The fourth stop on the Roman road is, is to salvation is Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Because of Jesus' death on our behalf, all we have to do is believe in Him. Trusting His death as the payment for our sins and we will be saved. Then Romans 10.13 says it again, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The final aspect of the Roman road is uh, Romans five one, was this wonderful message. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ, we can have a relationship of peace with God because our sins are covered by His sacrifice. How do we seek this kingdom of God? We, we acknowledge that we are, are sinners. We come to the conclusion that what the Scripture says about sin is true and that not one single person is free of sin. There is, we've all strayed. we are all gone our own way. Confess with the mouth. Believe in the heart. That Jesus Christ is the Lord. That his sacrifice was for us. And when Paul wrote that in Romans, he was referring to all that he had written already about it. So you need to realize he talked about the sacrifice and and, and the, the sin of Adam and all of that so that we would understand when we got to this point what we would be confessing, what we would be agreeing to in our heart. How do we stay the course? No. Romans chapter 12 is, is the, the, the best verse since we're already working with Romans here. Romans chapter 12, familiar verses, verse 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. If you read through the Scriptures, especially Paul's writings, you're going to find a number of places where Paul says, put off, and he lists the things of the of sin and of the world, and then he talks about put on the things of God. In order to be able to do this, the only way we can do this is through the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. How do we tap into that, we daily present ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. Asking Him to transform us so that we're not conformed to the world but transformed to the likeness of His Son. It's What it's all about. There is a kingdom. It's in place. Its king has been appointed. He was appointed really before the foundation of the world. But through His death, burial, and resurrection He actually came into the fruition of that kingdom and was exalted to the place of King of kings, Lord of lords, where Paul says in Philippians, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the King of this kingdom. And all who have confessed with their mouth and believe in their heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He is the one who has taken care of our sins, become citizens of that kingdom. And while the kingdom is developing at this point, it will be completed at the point in time of His coming for His church and establishing the new heavens and the new earth. What a powerful picture. We are intimately, intricately a part of that if we are resting in Jesus Christ as our Savior. I'd like to go to communion at this point. Communion is such a a picture of what Christ has done for us. The sacrifice that He made. The fact that He came in the flesh. The bread representing His body. That He poured out His blood. The cup representing His blood. The cross. The final words. It is finished. Unto Thee I commit my spirit. ask the ushers to come forward. Pass the communion out until we've all been served and we'll share it together. are told in Scripture on the night that Jesus was betrayed that he had taken bread and after giving thanks and breaking it and giving it to his disciples, he gave them instructions to eat it, but to do it with this new thought in, his, in their mind that this was his body. He asked us to do it as often as we would take this bread in remembrance of him. Not only would the bread be a symbol of his body until he comes again, but he said the cup would represent his blood poured out to purchase the covenant. And that often as we would share this cup together until he comes again, that we would do it in remembrance of him. Father, we thank you once again We come to your table to remember what you have done for us. We also think of the Scripture until you come again so that it reminds us not only what you have done or are doing, but what you are yet to do. We also realize that we are to come with hearts that are broken over our sin, confessing our sin, and asking Your forgiveness. And then having the confidence to know that when we confess our sins, You are faithful. You forgive us and restore us. To be able to rest in the assurance that You tell us there is no condemnation for those who rest in You. Thank You, Lord. We ask that You would be with us, go with us, cause us to be the men and women of God that You need us to be, that You want us to be in and around the community, both in the body, but as, as well as in the community that needs to see You. And give us all that, that desire to be ready to share what You have done for us when given that opportunity. In Jesus' name, Amen.